You're listening to Just One of the Guys, the podcast that celebrates the grandeur and majesty of the characters of the new Guardians. Nope, sorry. I couldn't even force a level of sincerity. episode of Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast. This is an internet radio show dedicated to bring you coverage of the Green Lantern comics from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004, putting a special emphasis on the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, the best Green Lanterns ever not to be wrapped around with black tentacle babies. Well, basically because Guy wasn't in the book at the time and Kyle wasn't even, well, written yet, so... Hello once again, my name is Sean Ingle, and today we're going to be covering a couple of books. Uh, the first book will be Green Lantern number 33, which bears a cover of Green Lantern, Hal Jordan, and Aresia in a creepy embrace because, well, Aresia is an alien who matured herself from supposedly age 14 to an older age just in order to get in the pants of Green Lantern. And the cover also bears a couple of creepy black hentai tentacles trying to surround them. Yeah. But if you're more in tune with fun and joyful issues, we've got something a little bit more in your wheelhouse with the Guy Gardner issue, where Guy basically tries to figure out why his power ring isn't working anymore and how he can prevent getting the beat out of him. But that'll come after, of course, the obligatory Green Lantern issue, which deals with the aforementioned Aresia. Hal having to deal with his relationships, and the new Guardians. Yes, despite all those things I'm not really too thrilled about, this is actually going to be a pretty good issue. So, we're going to go ahead and take a little break. I'm going to throw some promos in here, and as soon as we get back, we'll head into Green Lantern number 33. So, stay tuned folks, some Green Lantern fun is right around the corner. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away, a great adventure took place. I'm going to regret this. This is ridiculous.
handcuffed, half-witted, scruffy-looking nerf herder. Oh, no. Don't be alarmed. It's only a laser sword fight. Star Tours announces the boarding of the Endor Express, non-stop star speeder service to the moon of Endor. All passengers, please prepare for immediate boarding. No! Cannot get your ship off. <laughs> Lando Calrissian is a positive role model in the realm of science fiction fantasy. Lando Calrissian. Star Wars Monthly Mondays, available the first Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. We would be honored if you would join us. The funeral is over. Jonathan Kent is on the mend. So, uh, how's Clark's father? Oh, much, much better. Lois has returned home. Lois, over here! Harry, why? Since when did you start meeting your staff at the airport? How'd you know I was returning on that flight? A good editor checks out his answers, Lois. I got a hot story of once you run straight away. I'm parked over here. But just as Metropolis has learned to live without the Man of Steel... I know, there was only one Superman, but Metropolis just hit the jackpot. Because we got four Supermen now, and nobody knows which of them, if any, is the real McCoy. Four beings of incredible power and intellect have laid claim to the Man of Steel's name. The last son of Krypton. I live. The Man of Steel. Man of Steel coming through. Nobody moves. This is a bust. The Cyborg. Yes, I'm Superman. I'm back. The Boy of Steel. Put me down. Listen, pal, don't ever call me Superboy. Capiche? The reign of the Superman is upon us, and so from crisis to crisis, a Superman podcast begins its epic coverage of this last act in the epic Death and Return of Superman saga. Every week, Michael Bailey and Jeffrey Taylor, along with the best and the brightest in the podcasting community, will cover this event in all of its forms, from the comics to the novelizations, to the audio drama, and beyond. Superman is back, but is any of them the real Man of Steel? Find out on From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, located at www.supermanhomepage.com and www.supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And we're back. And as since we don't have any emails this time to read round, I kind of got them all read the last issue, issue so whatever. I'll get that eventually. We're gonna just jump right into our coverage of Green Lantern number thirty-three, which of course is Green Lantern number thirty-three, cover dated late November nineteen ninety-two, release date on or about September twenty-ninth of nineteen ninety-two. 
Cover price was $1.25 US, $1.50 Canada, and 60 p UK. The title this time around was The Third Law, Part 1, Big Questions. Writer was Gerard Jones, penciler was M.D. Bright, inker was Romeo Tegal, letterer Albert Guzman, colorist Anthony Tolan, and assistant editor Eddie Braganza, and finally editor Kevin Dooley. Surrounded by thousands of plants, looking like the head of the Floronic Man, former Green Lantern Aresia does what most people would do in this situation. She loses her f***ing sh- Luckily, the police are there to talk her down, and after a short chase through the fields of Floro, the officer catches the orange-skinned hottie as she warns him of an oncoming darkness, one that can only be stopped by Green Lantern. Meanwhile, Hal Jordan is trying to stop Carol Ferris from leaving the cushy roadside motel that they'd been staying in for her own place. After a confrontation about how she needs to get back to her work and get her life back in order, Carol is interrupted by a buzzing in Hal's pants. Luckily, it's only his JLA signal device, and Hal sneaks away to beam a ring construct signal to Blue Beetle in New York. Ted Cord notifies Hal that the police have found Aresia, and that she's been asking specifically for Hal. Saying this might take precedence over their time together, Hal rings up his uniform and prepares to head out. But before he can, he's got some splaining to do. He tells Carol about how Aresia had a crush on him, how they spent time together after the Corps disbanded, but how they now have no real commitment. Carol comes back with the fact that she and Hal were just supposed to be friends, but Hal says that he'd like to be more than that. And after a compliment on her new look, Hal rockets off to find Aresia. At the Coast City Police Station, the officers marvel at the strange alien with the body of a supermodel but the mind of a preteen. So, Lindsay Lohan, I guess. As Green Lantern enters, Aresia runs up to him, calling his name. Hal uses his ring to silence her in order to keep his identity secret, and teleports the both of them out of the police station. After a bit of clinginess, Aresia tells Hal that the plants were telling her to send Hal to Kreoth's Island, the home of the New Guardians. Trying to ditch the pre-team ball and chain, Hal beams a message to Killifog in hopes that he can take Arisi back to her home. But the GL sergeant says no dice, as he's in the middle of training the new lanterns for, from a recruitment drive. Wondering why the Guardians are being so secretive and unwilling to drop Arisi off with Nord, Hal takes her to the one place he knows she will be safe, the Justice League headquarters. Ice promises to take care of her, and Hal asks if Guy might have a talk with Arisi. Tora replies that Guy left the league, and Hal says that Guy will be back as he heads off to Kreoff's Island. Or Croft's Island. It's, it's spelled. Reaching the site, Hal sees the island covered with the Dome of Blackness, and Tom Kalmak and his family stranded on a raft just outside the dome's reach. Tom recounts how the New Guardians tried to fight the Entropoids to no avail, leaving him and his family to swim off the island. Luckily, they were saved from drowning by the Floronic Man, at least his head, creating a raft for the Kalmakis. Waiting to get to the bottom of this, Hal ring scans the Entropoid Dome until the weird black tentacles feed back along its beam. Hal cuts off the beam just before the tendrils can reach him and falls into the ocean as a voice inside his head monologues about why does he fight and something about the third law. Regaining his senses, Hal rescues the drowning Kalamakus and deposits them on a nearby beach. 
and I'll ask if Tom has heard anything from the Guardians about this. But Tom is as much in the dark as Hal is. Pulling out his power battery, Hal contacts the Guardians about what's going on, and gets essentially told to go pound sand. Frustrated, Hal points toward the sky, vowing that he'll go to Oa, confront the Guardians, and make them answer. Like I said at the beginning of the show, I'm really impressed and kind of surprised how a comic regarding the New Guardians, or dealing with the New Guardians, can actually be pretty interesting. I mean, I'm certain there are people who are fans of Floro, the Floronic Man, and Ram, and all the other (sighs) denizens of the island where the New Guardians are, and I'm certain people who are around during the Christ's Age were hoping that the New Guardians would have some big master plan in the DC Universe, but I guess they didn't, and I'm assuming this is kind of the way that Gerard Jones and the Green Lantern storytellers are trying to get around the fact that the New Guardians were sort of, well, left for dead, for lack of a better term. It's an interesting story, despite the fact that I really don't find the New Guardians all that entertaining. And also, to his credit, Hal's being written a lot more like a hero in this issue. He's actually doing heroic things, and he's not being a horn dog, Especially when he's confronted with Aresia, his former, I guess, kind of lover. You know, he's actually getting his head on straight and acting more like a hero. So, I'm really enjoying the take on the character more than I did in the past few issues. Plus, we've also got M.D. Bright back as the uh, artist, and no offense to Tim Hamilton, he did a great job last issue, but Bright just really personifies Green Lantern from this time period. He does a great job drawing, and it's good to have him back. He brings a artistic continuity to the book. But let's go ahead and start on notes for this. Uh, we'll start with the cover. It's another great horror cover with the two protagonists embracing while the mysterious black tendrils slowly wrap themselves around them. It's a very moody cover. I think the purple background also sets the mood with a sort of night or a wound-type feeling. It's definitely a cover that gives the sense of dread that I think they're trying to go for in the issue. Plus, again, um, as I said before, we're back to Bright as an artist, and he just gets the characters of Hal Jordan, especially Aresia in this book, really well. Again, nothing wrong with Tim Hamilton's drawings. It's just that I prefer the work of M.D. Bright. Going into the book on page one, well, here I can see a reason why Hal would be impressed with Aresia. Oh, I'm sorry, take that back. I can see two reasons why Hal would be so impressed with Aresia. Two orbish reasons. I'm certain you know what I'm talking about. Moving on, pages 3 and 4, I like the sort of Dave and Maddie moonlighting-type attitude that Hal and Carol are going through. It's a much better writing of their character, and I think that Gerard Jones is getting back to the idea of these characters being strong individuals rather than being sort of meek and, well, and meek in Carol's case and more horndog in Hal's case. Jones is getting the characters a lot better this time around, and I'm 
really enjoying it a lot more than the past few issues. Page 4, panel 3. Hey, Hal, is that a JLI communicator in your pants, or are you just happy to see me? <laughs> oh, oh, it is just a JLI communicator. Yeah, you don't want to get something buzzing in your pants. I mean, that just sends the wrong connotations. Page 7, again, I'm going to harp on it. Jones has got Hal right in this view. I mean, he's confident in his role as a hero, and he's confident in his role as Carol's love interest. And with him devoting himself to one woman, Carol, he moves away from the questioning, doubting character that he was kind of being portrayed as in prior issues. I'm liking a heck of a lot. This is more of the Hal Jordan than I'm used to. So I guess maybe those prior issues were just Hal trying to feel his way out, and now he's finally settled into the role of the hero again. Page 8, panel 6. Yo, woman, don't make Green Lantern have to choke a bitch. (laughs) Sorry. It's just that Hal's pulling a bit of a Rick James here and using his ring to silence Aresia before he says his name. It's just one of those weird things that happens when you have a secret identity and you have people who know and people who don't know, especially people who know and are openly trying to say your name. I guess that can cause some problems with you. Page 9, we get a few panels that really demonstrate how clingy Aresia is. I mean, she's matured herself in the previous Green Lantern Corps issues, but she's... something's wrong with her. Her mind has sort of regressed to that 13-year-old stage, and it's like she's got a big crush on Hal. She's really concerned about Hal leaving her. It's that clingy female thing. It really can get kind of irritating at times. Moving to page 11, we get after... Hal's contacted Kilowog, Hal thinking to himself about all the odd things that the Guardians are doing, especially making Nort a lantern. There you go, Nort's kind of a goofball. The uh, whole recruitment drive of new lanterns, which Hal had no knowledge of, and the whole thing that went on with Ganthet, and the idea, well, essentially, if you read the Larry Niven, John Byrne story, Ganthet's Tale, there was a Guardian who went back in time to stop Krona, the uh, evil guardian who initially went back in time and brought forth the Anti-Monitor and did all this stuff with Crisis, went back to stop him because he believed he had essentially warped time and caused a billion years of time not to happen, when in essence it was actually that guardian going back in time to try and stop Krona from stopping time. It's all confusing. If you go read it, you'll understand. But basically, the Guardians have been acting kind of weird, very secretive, and it's something that the Guardians usually do, but this time I think they're getting a bit of bit out of hand with it. Page 12, panel 3. Ice here tells Hal that Guy walked away from the Justice League. I guess this is nice that all these books are linking together, Yet, you don't feel that you have to read every single issue to know what the heck is going on. It's just kind of a bonus if you do read the issues, which is what I like. I like having comic books and storylines that are interconnected, but aren't so interconnected that you won't get the entire story if you don't read all the books. Do you hear me, Jeff Johns? You can write individual stories that don't have to be spread out over an entirety of a book's run. Blackest Night. Just saying.
page 15, it looks like these entropoids or the black ooze things took out all the new guardians except for Extraño, the Floronic Man, and Tom Kalmaku. Hmm. Maybe this evil likes plants, minorities, and homosexuals. Oh dear God. Could this ultimate evil be the Democratic Party? Then on page 16, panel 5, we get Hal scanning the black energy and then saying, it's just cold and empty, and it says crazy things to him. Dear God, could this ultimate evil be the Republican Party? There you go, folks. Just being fair and balanced. Page 18, panel 2. From the alien anthropoids, or the black ooze, or whatever you want to call it, we get the first mention of the third law and how entropy is somehow affected, or somehow related to it. This is something that's going to carry on through the next couple of issues. Then on page 20, panel 5. Okay, Hal, we know he's your friend. But please, please, please stop calling Tom Pie Face. It is not only borderline racist, but if you're going to be PC about certain things, i.e. changing your lantern oath, but still call your best friend a name that could have oh, negative connotations, maybe you need to reevaluate some things. Perhaps this is something that the writers will go over with here later in the book. Then finally, on page 22, we got Determined Hal is Determined, as we get an image of Hal Jordan standing there with his hand pointing towards the sky, saying that I'm coming for you, Guardians. Yep, Hal's peeved, and I think he's going to try and get some answers. And we'll find out those answers in the next issue. But coming up after this break and some promos for excellent podcasts that you all should be listening to, we've got the second issue of Guy Gardner. So stay tuned for some fun mixed in with your creepy horror from Greenlander. The dawn of an age. The founding of a family. You know we haven't done enough research into the effects of cosmic rays. We've got to take that chance. Conditions are right tonight. Let's go. They're penetrating the ship. Our shielding isn't strong enough. I feel like I'm burning up. Too heavy. Can't move. Too heavy. We're all alive. I feel so strange. You're fading away. I can't see you at all anymore. Look what's happened to you. You're changing. Oh, Reed, not you too. What happened to me? To all of us? I can fly. We gotta use that power to help mankind. Right. And so was born the Fantastic Four. For soon, the Mole Man will have the entire world in his power! I am the mightiest living mortal on Earth, and half mankind shall feel that might. The Fantastic Four. Little do they dream they're the palms in the hands of Dr. Doom. The Human Torch will be the Puppet Master's next victim. You guys can't change the way I can. I've been expecting you, for I am the thinker. I vow never to return, my lord. 
until the fantastic four are no more and the planet Earth is no more. You're in the presence of the awesome Ramatots, King of Kings, Master of Men, and Lord of the Seven Sons. Fool, you're just a muscular freak. Blind or hope. Stop! You must not enter the castle of Diablo. My journey has ended. This planet shall sustain him to the drain of all elemental life. So, speak, Galactus. Flamon! It's clobbering time! The Fantastic Four from the very beginning witnessed the origins of a legend. The Fantasticast. ffcast.libsyn.com I guess you weren't so tough after all, were you? Now it's time to send you to the next dimension. 291 original episodes. This can't be. It's still going up. 325 monster chapters. You act innocent, but you're deadly. Time to die! Dozens of characters, hundreds of enemies, and a whole lot of violence. That kind of violence is pointless! You see, Super Saiyans tend to be a bit violent. Oh, crap! Join hosts Donovan and Jesse as they cover the arrival of the Saiyans, the journey to Namek, the battle with Frieza, the mystery of the androids, and the terror of Majin Buu. I lied when I said you could go, at least partially lied, for I will let you go to another dimension! The Next Dimension, a Dragon Ball Z podcast. Join the fight at dbznextdimension.lipson.com. See ya! And welcome back, as we are ready to get into some Guy Gardnery goodness. Guy Gardner number two was cover dated November 1992, with a release date on or about October 6th of 1992. The cover price was $1.25 US, $1.50 Canada, and 60 p UK. The title was What's a Guy to Do? Writer this time around was Boom Boom Jones, penciler was Thum Staten, inker was Shawam Beatty, letterer was Kablang de Guzman, Colorist was Pow Pow Tolan. Assistant editor was Fwack Briganza. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> editor was Splat Dooley. <laughs> Way to go with Onomatopoeia. I guess they realized they were going all out with it. Ducking out of the way, Guy Gardner narrowly misses the punch of Thum, one of the three former foe Green Lanterns out for revenge on Guy. Forgetting that their job was to pound on Gardner, the trio fight amongst themselves, leading Guy to wonder who would hire these lugs to take him out. Coming to their senses, the trio stops fighting each other and runs after Guy. Out of ring power, Guy climbs up a nearby fire escape, only to have it give way under his weight. Grumbling about the city's building maintenance, Guy grabs a rusting water pipe and shoots water into Boom's face as he drops on him from above. Unfortunately, Buck 50 is there to catch Guy as he was falling and smashes him into the ground. Telling Guy to give him his best shot, Guy throws a haymaker, which doesn't even phase the purple pugilist. Before Guy can give it one more try, he spots Kilowog flying through the sky searching for him. The trio becomes concerned at the presence of a Green Lantern, as their presence was supposed to be masked by a cloaking field. This distraction allows Guy to escape long enough to commandeer a city bus that he drives straight into the trio, knocking them all out, but throwing Guy through the windshield. Pleased that he took out his foes without the use of his ring, Guy sneaks away to figure out how to finish them off. Meanwhile, news reports are coming in about the fight, 
with citizens wondering why the superhero had to use a bus to defeat his foes. With rumors of a powerless guy, Agent Bucky Sharp frets over how this will be bad news for him. With rumors of a powerless guy, the Justice League rejoices over how this will be good news for them. Meeting with Booster Gold and Blue Beetle, Kilowog says that Guy can actually do more damage without powers than most superheroes can do with them. And with that, Kilowog heads out to continue the search for Guy. Scanning the city for the sound of the thunderous footsteps of the three aliens, Kilowog finds his quarry far underground. Cut to a tunnel under New York City as Thoom, Boom, and Buck 50 desperately search for Guy. Saying that Guy is a smart fighter and they shouldn't underestimate him, Buck 50 turns to find that the tunnel is actually the subway line as they are plowed over by the Orange Line subway car. But Guy's victory is short-lived as Kilowog has found the former Lantern and demands that he hand over the ring. After a ring scan to determine that the yellow ring is powerless, Guy begs Kilowog to let him keep it. It's the one thing that he can keep as a memento of his former self. The last thing that he truly fought for. Touched by Guy's sincerity, Kilowog opts out of taking the ring back to the Guardians. As he flies back to Oa, he promises Guy that when he gets some leave, he'll come back to help Guy figure out his life. But there might not be any time for a reunion, as the alien trio have recovered and are ready to take Guy out permanently. Defiantly, Guy readies himself for a final battle, when his ring begins to glow with power. And with a sly grin, Guy gives the three adversaries the beating of their lifetime. Puzzled by the return of the ring's power, Guy asks the ring just to explain what's going on, which it does in Kuragarian. <sighs> Guy tries to get the ring to translate into English, but he has no luck with that either. Meanwhile, Buck 50 is approaching Guy, saying that he's through fighting, that he's contacted his bosses. And in a flash, Guy is beamed to the spaceship of the Palindrodnilap, a bunch of space-faring entrepreneurs who are taking him who are looking for an enforcer to protect their business interest. Guy is more than willing to take them up on the offer, but since he doesn't know how his ring is going to hold out, he suggests a challenge. In fact, the greatest test any hero ever got. And here in Guy Garden number, number two, we get our taste of the punchy-punchy run-run issue. Not that that's a bad thing. It's always kind of fun to see people fighting and tearing up the city. But there's also some drama here between Guy and Kilowog, and Guy shows the readers how desperately he wants to be a hero. It's a callback that Thomas DJ and I kind of mentioned on the Guy Gardner Reborn podcast, where this is the one thing that Guy has strived for for his life. It's the thing that defines him, and it's the thing that he desperately wants to be. And to have it taken away from him, especially so suddenly, is really heartbreaking again to see. But, for some reason, the power seems to come back, and that's something we'll deal with uh, in some later issues. But we'll go ahead and go on with the notes. Uh, starting with the cover... It's not really one of my favorite. The background is kind of drab, a sort of gray background with 
the building is not really being that detailed. Essentially, the cover is just an advertisement for giant white gloves. Yep, everyone on this cover is wearing gloves. They're white, and most of them are pretty big. So maybe uh, DC had a contract with some sort of company, maybe Isotoners, who knows. Plus, we've got a little artistic continuity error here. On the cover, it's Buck 50's right eye that's the uh, squinky one. And in most of the issue, it's his left eye, the one that's all squinked up. So just a minor nitpick, but when you're reviewing the books like this, you kind of pick those out every once in a while. Page one, as mentioned in the uh, Who This Was Written By page, or Who This Was Written By synopsis that I gave at the beginning, Onomatopoeia plays a big part in this issue, and I'm I'm really digging it. The fact that they're using the sound descriptive the descriptive sounds just gives the book more of a fun feel. Page two is Thum and Boom are still fighting amongst each other. They're still recounting how many times that they've each knocked each other down, and I think the count is thirteen thousand two hundred and forty two to thirteen thousand one hundred and eighty one. And then, boom, or boom, I can't tell them apart. They're pretty much the same. Says, hey, you can't count those eight times you hit me while I was asleep last week. (laughs) So, obviously, they're doing anything to keep up the uh, knockout count. Ridiculousness. Page three, panel two, we hear Buck 50 say, We've been hired to pound Guy Gardner until we beat him into a pulp. Or he beats us to a pulp. Odd, who in the world would be wanting to hire a guy gardener to beat people up? Unusual, but more as we go along. Moving on a bit in the book, we've got Kilowog flying over the New York skyline, and this time it's kind of photo-referenced. It's a nice piece of artwork, but you can tell that it's not hand-drawn. They obviously used a photo and just sort of inked and colored it in. It's nice when we see that every once in a while in comics, uh, It adds a sense of realism to them. Then, same page, panel two, we get Kilwog saying that he needs to contact Guy's friends, but then, of course, he corrects himself and says, uh, the rest of people what know Guy. Obviously kind of hinting to the fact that Guy doesn't have all that many friends. Page nine, we get some nice, well, comic book physics, as it would be, as Guy takes the bus and slams it into our antagonists with the bus hitting Thum and Boom, the frame of the bus removing from the bus, and the undercarriage hitting Thum and Boom, Guy flying out the windscreen, and then the car- the frame of the bus smashing into Buck 50. Yeah, Guy probably wouldn't survive or really be moving very well after being thrown headfirst with the windscreen above a bus, but it's nice that they're trying to make an effort to show what would happen when a bus hit a large, hulking brick thing. Page 11. I dub this page the Page of Goofy Haircuts. Want to know why? Well, we've got Bucky Sharp on there with his sort of Alfred E. Newman-type face and his I-don't-know-what haircut. It's just a mishmash of hair falling all over the place. You'd actually have to see it. I may see if I can get some pictures of it and put it up on the website. But then after that, you've got Booster Gold. Yes, Booster Gold in his 90s 
mullet phase. I don't know about you. I think this is a mullet. Yes, it is kind of long in front, but it definitely has long hair in back. It's it's a very 90s haircut, and sadly, very goofy as well. Page 14, panel 7. This is where we get to the drama of the issue. I mean, Guy is really trying to be sincere here. He's not trying to pull one over on Kilowog. He's not making stuff up so it'll benefit himself. He's actually trying to convey the fact that this means something to him. He knows that this is the last reminder of the hero he wanted to be. And to have Kilowog and the Guardians just want to take it is really tearing him up inside. Again, it's a side of Guy Gardner that a lot of people have never really looked at, and I think it's what defines the character, and really, for me, makes him more of an interesting character than a lot of the other Green Lanterns. It's his desire to want to be a hero, combined with his inability to really relate with people, that makes him a really interesting character to me. Then page 16, panel 2, a miracle of miracles the ring is recharged, and we really don't have any idea how. We don't know whether it was Guy being an emotional, whether it was some sort of thing where the ring just wasn't working for Guy at a certain time, but I'm assuming we'll probably find out later in the book. Well, later in the series, definitely. Then on page 18, panel 6, we get the ring translating to Guy. Unfortunately, it's translating in its owner's language of Kurigarian, I guess. It makes sense. It's Sinestro's ring, and if he wanted it, if he wanted to keep the ring for himself, he'd make it speak the language that he knows. In fact, I'm kind of wondering if, when the lanterns talk to themselves or talk to each other, if they're actually speaking in their own language and the ring is actually translating for them. I've never really thought if there was that sort of Babelfish aspect to the lanterns. Maybe it is. Then, moving on a bit further into the book, we get page 20, panel 4, and as Guy's been beamed up to the alien ship, which really kind of a cool sort of Kirby-esque design, Guy's stance is really weird as he's coming out of the teleporter beam. He's, it's, let me see if I can kind of describe it. His legs are kind of far apart, and he's bent back, and he's kind of pushing his groin forward. Makes me kind of think that Guy might be a fan of the Rocky River Picture Show, and he might be trying to do a bit of the, uh, bit of the old time warp here. It's just a jump to the left. Yeah, I can imagine Booster and Beetle dragging Guy and Ice out to a midnight showing in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and things not going very well for the actors there. Just saying, Guy doesn't seem to be one of those people who take too kindly to the uh, likes of the Rocky Horror Picture Show crowd. 
Then again, on page 20, panel 5, we get the name of the aliens. Yes. It's a goofy name. It's a name that's difficult to pronounce, and I understand what it is. It's a palindrome, which, if you don't know what that is, it's a word that can be spelled the same way forwards and backwards. Uh, the best example I can come off with, uh, I can come up with right off the top of my head is race car. If you take the word race car and spell it backwards, it spells race car. So the what is it? The palindrop. I can't even say it. Palindrodnilap. Backwards is the palindrodnilap. There again, one of these alien races that look good in print, but are really difficult when you're trying to say them out loud. Page 21, panel 2. The aliens mention Legion, the Dark Stars, and the Bellatrix bombshells as alien races that have formed, essentially, protection firms that are similar to the Green Lantern Corps. I'm wondering, with Boudica being from Bellatrix, if she was originally one of these Bellatrix bombshells. Or maybe it's just a roller derby league. Who knows? And then finally, on page 22, panel 4, you've got to wonder, uh, Guy, is it a good idea to have a heroic fight when you don't even know how the ring is going to work for you? I guess that's just showing how Guy Guy is. He doesn't care whether or not he's going to have the power of the ring to help him out. He's going to prove himself one way or the other. But that does it for the synopsis of the book. Let's go ahead and check out some of the ads, see if there's some neat stuff that they're trying to sell us this time around. And on the front-end side cover, we get Now the Game Genie Works, its power on the Sega Genesis. And it was only a matter of time before they ported over the Game Genie console to the Genesis, because the NES system was kind of getting out of date, and the, Nintendo, the Super Nintendo and the Sega Genesis were coming up, so Game Genie had to go where the money was, and they decided to make a sort of cheat code game for the Genesis as well. Then a few pages in, we get, maybe in a few years, the game will catch up. And it's an ad, again, for Skybox football cards, with a picture of Jerry Rice of the 49ers on it. I guess he's a football player, and you can probably imagine what my feelings on it are. Then the next page, I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. It's an advertisement for the Ugly Kid Joe album, America's Least Wanted, which has the fine animated Ugly Kid Joe as the Statue of Liberty standing there in New York Harbor, flipping people off. Yeah, Ugly Kid Joe. It's odd to see a advertisement for a band and a magazine, but I guess they needed publicity wherever they could, and... DC was willing to give it to him. Then a few pages in, we get the October 1992 schedule for Great Eastern Conventions. They don't mention any names, but they've got some big cities like Philadelphia, Chicago, Pittsburgh, Miami, New York, Houston, San Francisco, and Rutland, Vermont. Rutland, Vermont. If you know Time Chasers, you'll hate Rutland, Vermont. Then the next page is your typical hodgepodge page, but it's odd. At the top, I guess they're selling advertising for the hodgepodge page. I guess people aren't all that interested in putting their little ads in the hodgepodge, so they're putting out ads so that you could advertise there. Neat. 
few pages in, we've got uh, some ads for DC posters. We've got one for Vigilante, a poster for Nightwing, and a poster for Eclipso. Eclipso bears Bart Sears art. Uh, Art T. Bear is doing Nightwing, and Mike Zek is doing the Vigilante poster. They're all nice images. Uh, If you're a comic book collector at the time, you probably had a couple of these posters plastered all over your wall. Except for Eclipso. Then the next page, you could get a couple more DC House ads for the Legion of Superheroes Archives, Volume 2, a poster of Power by, I'm sorry, Power of Shazam by Jerry Ordway, and the Green Lantern Corps Quarterly, Number 3, which has the story, Whatever Happened to Charlie Vicker. And if you're wondering who Charlie Vicker is, you're probably not all that interested in wanting to know what happened to him. A few pages on, you get this weird ad with a blue background and a red Superman symbol with a bleeding ass, and this white figure standing in front of it with the title Doomsday is Coming for Superman. Hmm. I wonder if anything happened with that. Then the next page, we get the subscription page for all the DC comics, and some of them actually probably even ran more than 12 issues, so if you bought an annual subscription, you got your money's worth even for Peter Cannon Thunderbolt. Finally, we get another letter column that's being answered by Guy Gardner himself, and there's some humorous stuff in there. It's typical Guy answering stuff, as you would think, you know, him being very, very machismo-centric, if that's even a description. Then we get a big 90s ad with the glow-in-the-dark cover, Confront Evil the Spectre, and this is a good this is a good one. It's uh, the ongoing monthly written by John Ostrander and drawn by Tom Mandrake. It's a really moody-looking cover, and it looks like this is the original Spectre, obviously well before Hal Jordan took over the uh, character. Then on the back inside cover, we get Super Impact, or Super High Impact Football, the football action so real it's bone-crunching. I'm pretty certain we covered this last issue. It's for the Sega, and it's a port of the video game. So, if you like football with violence in it, and who doesn't really, Super High Impact is your game. And finally, the outside back cover is a highly suggestive ad for the game Dr. Franken, which tells you to get a monster bone. Which... Obviously, it can be misconstrued, but it's the Game Boy game for Dr. Franken, where you play a monster in search for Frankie's beautiful goyle friend, Bitsy. (sighs) Game Boy games. They're nutty. But that's about it for ads. Uh, I'd just like to mention, again, as usual, this issue, as well as the Green Lantern issue before it, have not been reprinted in any way, shape, or form. Sadly, DC looks kind of poorly upon the 90s Green Lantern, and very poorly on the 90s Guy Gardner. But I'm here to cover the stuff, and I'll be back next week for part two of the third boss storyline, and part three, well, issue three of Guy Gardner. So, I hope you guys had a good, I hope you guys have a good week, and I hope we'll see you back here next week. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you again. Bye. You've been listening to Just One of the Guys, a Green Lantern podcast, hosted by yours truly, Sean Ingle. 
All images, stories, and music are copyright their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. This podcast is done solely out of my desire to show the denizens of the internet that comic books can be fun, humorous, compelling, thought-provoking, and exciting, while not having to fall into the weary tropes of the 1990s. I'm not in any way doing this for monetary gain, which irritates my wife to no end. All feedback for the show can be sent to the show's Gmail account at justoneoftheguyspodcast at gmail.com. All feedback, positive and negative, is warmly welcomed. All spam bots are warmly welcomed, too, as long as your definition of a warm welcome is for them to die horribly in a fire. The website address for the show can be found at justoneoftheguys, all one word, dot libsyn, spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N, dot com. There you can find the RSS feed, as well as scan for the covers and whatever else I feel like putting up. Look for me on iTunes. Just search for Just One of the Guys Podcast. You can also search for me on Facebook. I mean, you won't find me there, because I don't have an account there. But if you have enough free time to listen to me babble on about funny book characters, you obviously can spare some time to wander around on Facebook. Thanks for downloading and listening, and come back next Friday for another episode of Just One of the Guys, a Greenlander podcast. The opening music for today's show was Trip the Darkness by the band Lacuna Coil. If you'd like to listen to more music from Lacuna Coil, or possibly buy more music from Lacuna Coil, I would suggest you go to the Two True Freaks website at twotruefreaks.libson.com, click the Amazon banner at the top of the page, where you'll be redirected to Amazon, where you can buy Lacuna Coil's album, download their song, or download the album there. You can also find a myriad of wonderful things just by searching around Amazon. And every time you use the link at twotruefreaks.libson.com, a little money will be going back to make sure that the Two True Freaks keep putting out quality, fine, Demonzacore podcast, which in some ways might be a type of oxymoron.